When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. All right, welcome everybody to a very, very special edition of Take the Black Live. Um, we have two special guests here today. We have David Mandel, uh, who wrote a couple shows. Uh, um, let's see, there's one called Seinfeld, and, and then uh, Veep, and then this other one, Curb Your Enthusiasm. So obviously very, very, very funny man. Um, very jealous of the comedic skills there. Um, and we also have with us here today, Ryan Condal. Um, he is late of writing a couple movies for The Rock. You might have seen Rampage and Hercules. Um, and then he has a show on, just moved on to Netflix called Colony. Um, and then of course, um, near and dear to people um, on our site, he is the new showrunner writer on House of the Dragon, Game of Thrones successor show. So welcome both of you guys to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, yeah. Yeah, and so we're here today to talk about, you guys have your own podcast called uh, Stuff Dreams Are Made Of, and it delves into everything you've never wanted to know about <laughs> prop collecting in Hollywood. Um, it is incredibly detailed. I've listened to the first two episodes. They're very fun. Um, Y'all, both of your enthusiasm comes across very strong, um, and that's that's definitely a plus, I think, no matter what the subject matter is because it kind of rubs off on people. So, um, like I said, they are heavy, heavy Hollywood prop collectors. Um, and the new podcast, just it, it, 10 episodes for the first season. Is that right guys? We're doing 12 actually. Oh, so 12. it'll be six, six yeah. this year. And then, and then we break for the holidays and then six right at the top of 2021. Okay, perfect. So one of the first things you guys talk about on the on the uh, podcast is what y'all deem the collecting gene. So for anyone who hasn't listened to the podcast yet, which is available anywhere podcasts, uh, anywhere you get your podcast, tell us what the collecting gene is. Um, I believe it's a genetic abnormality uh, similar <laughs> to, I guess similar, I guess, to the X-Men, I guess a little bit, sort of a <laughs> mutation, if you will. Um, no, it's, it's just this funny thing where I just, I, it's a theory we, I think we both ascribe to, uh, ascribe to, which is that you're just a born collector. You are, it's, it's, it's not, I guess it can be nurtured, but you are just, you're born, you are, it's not a choice. You just are a collector. Um, and, uh, and you just see it. And, uh, you know, I, speaking for myself, I was, I was that kid and I just, you know, I always had little collectibles and things that I wanted to get all of. And it eventually made its way to baseball cards and comic books and toy collecting and, and then eventually uh, original comic art and now movie props. And it just, I don't know, left to my own devices. I mean, it's not hoarding. It's not, but it's not not hoarding either. And it just, you, you just, you have it. And I, I say on the podcast, I have two kids and I can tell one of them has the gene and one of them could care less. And it's, it's just funny. Uh, you do or you don't. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I was actually, I've been thinking more about this as we've gotten deeper into this podcast. And the guy always said, sort of said, you know, kind of started with baseball cards and star Wars toys and, you know, comic book, all the stuff that you kind of hear generally. And then I was thinking actually it even started even earlier because my, my Nana, my mom's mom, uh, uh, who's actually still with us. She, um, she used to uh, collect like American coins, nothing crazy. She wasn't going after like 
gold double eagles or anything like that. But she, I remember we would fill these, um, these like press in penny books together when oh, yeah. I mean, I must've been like four or five trying to get all the years. And she had these jars of old coins and, you know, when an old relative would pass, she would inherit their big, you know, those big, you know, change jars and we would go through them and find the little steel pennies from, from world war two. And they stopped using copper and all those little, you know, interesting ones. And I just remember thinking, Oh man, one day I want to own a 1909 VDB penny. It was like the first, you know, the first of the modern run of the, you know, the penny with the, uh, with the one cent and the, you know, little, the little, uh, you know, uh, Caesar, Caesar leaves on the, on the back of it. And I mean, I must've been four or five. And I just like, I just remember the obsession of like searching through all those pennies, trying to find it. And it's like, it's, I'm just totally born with it. I mean, my brother could not, could not care less about any of this stuff. So. There yeah. You sometimes, sometimes my, uh, when my mother is cleaning our, our place where I was, raised in new york she'll just send me a box of stuff like she'll take a drawer or something and just go do you want any of this and send it and i'll go through it and i'll go like oh wow i forgot i kind of collected stamps for a year or two you know what i mean it's just like it's that you know it's just hilarious and by the way you can still use those stamps on letters i mean you got to put a lot of them on a lot. <laughs> but they do work Definitely. and and it's I like that you mentioned it's a bit of an obsession. So is there ever a point uh, where, you know, where you sober up, uh, so to speak, when you're, when you're going after something where you're just like, okay, this is just, this is ridiculous. The price is too much. I'm spending too much time. Any, you know, anything, any point like that? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I will say, I'll say three things in no particular order. I do think, my collecting, as you can imagine, did change when all of a sudden I had a wife and children. I mean, it just, it right. just did. I think, uh, you know, again, first of all, just time-wise. I mean, I used to spend, I used to work a lot, like, you know, if I was working on something and I would, my other, it was like I would work. And when I wasn't working, I was talking about collecting, meeting with collectors, trying to find things. And then somewhere in there, that, you know, you're, you have wife and kids and both, you know, you work, if you can, a little less and the collecting thing gets pushed where it gets pushed to. So that's number one. Number two, as you start thinking about things and look, let's be honest, things like what does college cost and what does school cost? I mean, again, let's just be honest about these things. And I'm lucky enough to have a, a, a silly job that does, you know, overpay me, but still you start to think about those things and you start to prioritize certain other things. And so that changes stuff. Um, but I am lucky enough to have a large collection. So I do occasionally have things where if I'm going to go crazy, I start to think to myself, I have to force myself. I'm going to, I'm going to, what am I going to sell? What am I going to sell to pay that next thing. And these are thoughts that maybe I didn't have 10 years ago. So that's, that's some of the differences, I guess, for me as a, you know, later collector, I guess. Uh, that's the easiest way I can put it. Um, you know, it's just facts of life. Yeah, I think for me, it's always like, I, I collected a bunch of things before I got to, to, you know, original movie memorabilia. That was sort of the last stop. So I had trained myself in the, you know, I, I will tell you, I haven't opened my long boxes that are stored away in my mother's attic uh, still that she's begging me every summer to please come get out of her house. But I haven't opened them in, in a long time. But I know when I do, I will find very embarrassing runs of comics that I do not remember buying and collecting. I do but know that Darkhawk is in there. It's, yeah. it's <laughs> not even the comics. It's whatever you thought might be worth something. Yes. The yes. realization that sort of, Post, I guess, really the 70s, there are seven comic books worth anything and everything yes. else is worthless. And yeah. I was... You mean my, I, my polybagged run of the Executioner's Song, Dave, in perfect condition is, is not going to be worth that much? I don't want to make you cry. I'm just going <laughs> to tell you at some point or another, about a couple of years ago, I shut down my New York storage unit and had everything shipped out. And I realized... Besides the shipping out, which was X number of dollars, I had been paying thousands of dollars to, for a storage unit in New York City. And I had all these long boxes. I'm like, okay, what, you know, is, are these worth anything? And a friend of mine, a comic book guy, went through and he was like, I think these six boxes here might be worth a couple of grand, which more or less covered the shipping out. And then he said, and then the rest of it, 
which was like at that point, like 30 or 40 other long boxes of comics. He goes, I don't know, $50 a box. And I was just like, my <laughs> life, my life. And so I guess at least if they're not in a storage unit, that's something. <laughs> man, oh man, yeah. I thought I, these were the comics that I thought I would retire on. Yeah. And honestly, other than if there is one day water world where paper is, in, is worth millions of dollars, Nothing, just nothing. Yeah. yeah. Well, and this is pretty terrible paper as far as paper goes. So even that would be kind of. A but I guess at least yeah. in Waterworld, it would be worth something. I guess. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, I sort of burned out the 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 kind of dumb, you know, sort of you know side road thing on doing other things. I mean, I remember when when I I, I talk about this on the podcast, but I used to collect replica props, which are basically you know replicas that are either licensed or unlicensed. I mostly collected the unlicensed stuff, the stuff that was handmade and and built more intricately because I liked that the sort of limited one-off kind of nature of that and um, I I amassed a kind of embarrassingly large collection of that stuff that I sold off once I got into original props and I was like yes this is what I want to be and want to do I was like I don't need any of this stuff anymore at all I kept a couple of things things just like earlier on that I love but I basically got rid of the rest of it and I just remember I I kept a spreadsheet as I was, you know, selling and deal, and I could not believe how much of it I had, how much I had spent on it, and how much it was worth presently. So I did, I did pretty well. Like the license stuff, I did very well on because all that went way up because it was basically like, you know, high end toys. The unlicensed stuff, you break even, you maybe do a little well or do a little worse or whatever. But I could not. It was, I was, I my life. I was sort of going through that experience. Experience. It wasn't, you know, a storage unit in New York, but it was. It was like fifty pieces. I could. I couldn't believe. I couldn't believe that I had that much. Uh, but now I'm very regimented. I'm, I. If my rule is, if I'm not going to display it, I'm not buying it, and that's that's sort of the rule that I live by, and it keeps me very, you know, zen and centered, and it's worked for me so far. And I have no such rule. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good rule. I was, uh, you know, I was gonna, I collect uh, autographs and things of that nature as well. And um, I kind of have a giant closet full of stuff that I just can't display. So that's a great um, rule. But one of the things you guys talked about on the podcast was just um, the interactions that you have with people that you, you know, that you end up buying a, a prop from when you track them down and things like that. And, and I was, I was struck by kind of those conversations um, because like in the autograph community, there's, you know, we have like message boards and things like that. And people, stories get around about different celebrities, athletes and things like that. Uh, for instance, um, Jerry Seinfeld, I, I know he has, has a thing about people touching him or shaking his hand. And so <laughs> word got around as long as you stayed a certain distance, Jerry was super cool. Um, but he didn't like people in his personal space, which, you know, understandable, but there was things ended like, up being very prescient. He was, he was ahead of his time. Right. Yes. At, right. Well, yeah, exactly. Nowadays for sure. So, you know, what, what's been kind of your, your favorite story tracking down in, in as far as how much work it took and then your favorite interaction with somebody, even if it was just an easy person, you picked up the phone, but that you know your favorite interaction you have with somebody when you're tracking down a prop um i mean the craziest for me and i tell a version of this story in the second uh in the second episode i actually hired a private investigator to track down um there were these pieces of star wars art so it's kind of movie prop adjacent but they were you know made you know connected to the production for the marketing that were used for the burger king uh, drinking glasses and posters that they gave out in 1977 when the movie came out. It was a Coca-Cola Burger King production. And, you know, everyone I knew had these posters. I still have a set of these drinking glasses. You can buy them on eBay. Um, and I was trying to find this art and I had a couple of clues as I, and I, you know, again, I tell the whole story, but I had a couple of pieces of information on who had them. And I hired a private eye going, here's this person, here's kind of what I know, here's an old email that's not working, I think this is their initials, and the, maybe the, the, the first name and the last initial, and the dad worked at Coca-Cola, can you find, can you find them? And, I, and the, the private eye found them, and when the private eye contacted me, kind of went, here's the person, here's his phone number, he's waiting for your call, 
he was really amused by this. And uh, the guy and I actually became friendly because he kind of got like a real kick out of the fact of how badly I wanted the stuff, how, how you know, that I hired a private eye. I guess it could have gone another way, um, but it was, uh, it was, it was pretty enjoyable. Um, uh, on the flips, not on the flip side, but on a different version of it over the last, uh, I don't know, I guess a couple of years, I got to know uh, Joe Johnston, who worked on the Star Wars movies. He did storyboards, but he also built models and painted them, and then he became a director in his own right. And a couple of years ago, um, through uh, someone that was working for him, he was selling some things, and I bought a couple of things, you know, through the, the assistant on eBay, but then ultimately got to meet Joe and separate from buying anything just as a director, as somebody, you know, who works in the industry, we've had, you know, gotten to know him and had a couple of, you know, meals together. And that's just been really enjoyable. You know what I mean? So, you know, things come out of these things in different ways. Um, for me, I mean, the craziest was I, uh, I'm a big fan of the movie Tombstone, uh, mm -hmm. which, you know, the, the famous Western about the, you know, wide Earp and the OK Corral. And uh, it was sort of a surprising hit, you know, it came out in the same year or the same year, you know, 12 month period as the, the Kevin Costner one, which was supposed to be the awards contender and the, you know, the, the kind of highbrow one, you know, Larry Kasdan wrote and directed it. But Tombstone ended up being, you know, the sort of the run and gun version ended up being the more popular film. And I just I saw it, you know, I saw it when I was a kid. I loved it. And um, I'd always wanted from something from it. And I managed to track down the armorer. Who, who supplied all the all the, the guns to the to the film and he was this cowboy that lived uh, a little outside Los Angeles and he was uh, he ran this group called the Buckaroos so they hired him as like an all services western guy so he supplied not only the the, the he sourced all the right guns because he's a western historian so he knew the right you know guns to put into the into the movie but also the cowboys and the horses and everybody to do all the kind of the stunts and the riding and teach the actors how to do whatever. So he was like a full service, you know, dude that they just hired to come in. So he's a character. And uh, so I tracked him down. Uh, he had, he had a, a, a landline. So I had to call and no answering machine. So I had to call and try to get him to like pick up when he was like at the house. So we started up a conversation. He was very charming. He, uh, you know, he brought, you know, invited me out. So he lives on this crazy, you know, farm with the horses and, you know, and guns. And there was like a tank out there, just uh, crazy stuff. And, uh, and, you know, telling all these stories. And these guys are like, they're, 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 they're cowboys. I mean, you, you, ha you can only believe so much of, of the, the, the tall tales that they tell you. But he pulled this thing out and he had, he had Wide Earp's uh, uh, Buntline special, the one, the hero one from the movie. There were three made. Uh, he had, he had the one and we talked and it took, you know, months and months of back and forth. You know, he told me he, you know, he wanted, he wanted a, a fortune for it. And then the fortune got smaller and smaller as we went along. And then once he realized it was actually serious and was actually going to pay him real money for this thing, he kind of got serious about it. But uh, it was just many drives up into this, this place where I kept wondering whether I was going to get, you know, blackjacked by some cowboy and have my, you know, have the, the wheels taken off my car. But he ended up being very nice. And we actually stayed in touch over the years. He ended up writing a book about his experiences on Tombstone. So that was, that was, that was fun. That was, a, you know, there was a lot of legwork, a lot of, uh, you know, eating dust up in the California desert. In terms of um, interaction as a fan, I actually got to meet uh, John Milius, who is a, uh, is a hero of mine. And um, I, uh, I, as a, you know, as a, as a writer, I love to, you know, Conan the Barbarian talk about this on the, on the podcast, all of his writing, you know, very inspired by him. And, and I became friendly with the guy that did the, uh, created the, the documentary about him called, called Milius, which is excellent and worth, worth seeing for anybody who's even casually a fan. And uh, one day he was like, Hey, he's in LA. Do you want to go meet him? And I said, Oh yes, that would be, that'd be great. So he brought me over and, um, you know, John had had a, uh, had a stroke in the last 10 years. So talking is, is tough, but he, ha he has this assistant who can kind of translate for him. So he understands everything you're saying. It's just hard for him to, to get it out and, and vocalize. But just, you know, sitting there with him. And I got to tell at the point, at this point, I already owned my Conan sword. So I wasn't, I wasn't actually specifically looking for anything from him. But I got to tell him that I had one of the swords. He thought that was great. He thought it was great that I wrote Hercules because he loves history and all that. He's telling all me, me all these stories. And uh, I asked him where his Conan swords were, and he told me he lost them, which was heartbreaking. Uh, but then he must have found them because years and years later, they ended up actually in an, in an auction somewhere. Um, but I remember he went into the back, and he was like, 
he was like, you know, wait a second. He comes out and he brought out like six uh, handmade Italian shotguns. Like he, he collects these beautiful, uh, the over under, you know, kind of skeet, skeet shooting uh, shotguns and just laid them all on the table and showed them to me and had me open them and look, you know, through, it was, it was amazing. It was just, it was great. It was, you know, they say don't meet your heroes, but it was really, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was exactly the kind of meeting, you know, I would have wanted to have with, with John Milius. So it was, it, it, it was great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, one of the other things I loved that I believe is on the second episode you guys mentioned about, and it's kind of the same realm, but you talk about how when you're showing your collection, it, it's almost more enjoyable to tell the story of how you got the item and and where it came from and the story behind it than it was about the actual item itself sometimes, which I, I totally connected to because I enjoy telling the story of where I got this, how I got this, how it all went down as opposed to, you know, there's a basketball right here or there's a, you know, a movie poster or something like that. So, um, but the flip side of that is, is there a prop in y'all's collection that keeps you up, it, that the provenance keeps you up at night? And follow-up question, have you ever had a prop that you later found out was not genuine? Um, I guess, I don't know if there's anything left that keeps me up at night. There were definitely pieces I've had over the years that I, you know, I wanted to know more about, I guess is the honest answer. I had a, uh, I had a Darth Vader helmet um, that I bought, uh, and I tell the story on one of the shows, but I've lost track of which show, but not in the first two. Um, so download the whole season yeah. and listen to all of it. Yes, you have to saying. subscribe to hear the rest of this, but, but the, the, the gist of it was, I purchased it in an auction. George Lucas had put it in a DGA auction years ago, and it was put into the auction as a screen-used helmet. And over the years, as I and other people have learned more and more about Darth Vader helmets, I began to think that while whether it was or wasn't screen-used was one discussion, I learned enough about the helmet to start to go, I think it's one of the tour suits, meaning not a suit made for the movie, but made um, for, to, 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 you know, do appearances for the movie. Sure. Now, the way the archives work, they just grab stuff and sometimes put things on screen. So, for example, there's another tour suit where the helmet was used for the poster of Empire Strikes Back. So, again what it was made for and whether it was used or not, again, are two separate discussions, but at some point or another, it was, it was sort of mounted in this very complicated way. They had done it. They had the way Lucas had given it to the auction. He didn't want, I guess, people wearing it. So it was kind of mounted. And so I had to take it off and unscrew all of this stuff. And then there was some like, you know, cement glue that I had to like kind of, make sure I wasn't hurting the helmet, but I finally kind of, after years of owning it, got it all apart to be able to go, okay, this is a tour suit. Now, again, they're saying it was used, great, but I kind of was able to lock in exactly what it was. And eventually when a non-tour suit with a screen match came up later on, I was able to kind of do an upgrade and kind of go, I'm going to sell this and buy that. And again, it wasn't keeping me up at night, but I needed to know what it was. That that's, that's the simplest answer. Like I don't, I don't want to be the guy. And unfortunately there are people that do want to be the guy that like, I've met people where they go, what do you think of my Superman costume? And in my mind, I'm going, I'm pretty sure that's a fake, but I'm also pretty sure they don't want me to be the one to tell them that. I have always said to all my collecting friends, I want to know if you see something wrong, tell me because I don't want to be the guy going look at my Superman suit. So over the years, the one or two pieces, and I've had one or two pieces that I'm pretty sure were fakes. I've gotten rid of them or I've just thrown them in the garbage or I go, this is a fake. Um, and then, like I said, with that piece, it wasn't so much it was a fake, but I wanted to know exactly what it was. Right. I want to know. So that, that's my answer. And with autographs, I mean, you collect those. I assume it's the same thing if you're buying something that you are not getting in person. Obviously, it's a different thing where you were there and they signed it. But 
I have some Star Wars, uh, I have Star Wars autographs. And, you know, certainly for someone like Alec Guinness, who's long dead, I made sure that I was talking to a guy I know who is a Star Wars autograph expert who I was able to send and go, what do you think of this? And he goes, that's a fake. That's a well-known fake. And then when I went, what do you think of this Alec Guinness Obi-Wan one? He goes, that's right. And here's why you know it's right. Because I just, I don't know. I, I, I want to know. That's, that's the honest answer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, same for me. I, you know, I think, and that's the mark of a serious collector versus somebody. I mean, look, nobody want, none of us want to have a fake in our collection. We just want to know that so we can correct it or go back at the auction house where we bought it or, or the collector we bought it from or, or whatever. Um, so, but, uh, but I, you know, I'm also of the mind that I want to know and I try to make that known so that if somebody sniffs something out in my collection, they will tell me and I don't have it sitting there for 10 years thinking it's real and it's not. Um, I don't, I have a piece that I, I'm not, worried about it being a fake because it's got all the right story and everything but i i want to know what it is and i so i have one of the um holy grail uh chalices the cup the cup of the carpenter from uh, indiana jones and the last crusade right. and it has um it has a uh like a ball bearing in the in the stem at the you know the base where the cup would sit on the table so you actually can't rest it on the table because it's, it's not it's not stable i have to you kind of have to hang it up and um it was sold uh, the provenance i came from another collector but before that he had bought it in the early 90s through a christie's auction so it had pretty good provenance i don't know how many people in the early 90s which was three years after the film was made are making fake indiana jones holy grail cups with ball bearings in them and so it's something and um, and it looks completely right because there's actually it's a it's it's a well I don't know faked prop but it's a it's a heavily replicated prop because replica collectors like to have sure. the Holy Grail cup. They're not none of them are right. They all look the shape isn't right, the paint isn't right. There's a, there's a very specific finish done to it. It's cast and then made to look like it was made you know made it on a potter's wheel. Um, it's really brilliantly done. The gold leafing inside. You look at it and you're like this is this is was made by an artist a long a very long time ago. Um, I don't know what it is. And I, I, it's been suggested that it was part of the special effects sequence at the end when the temple collapses and when, when they needed the cup to roll around, they right. wanted to be able to either reel it back in or control how it rolled. So there was thinking that maybe there was a, a bracket of some type attached to it so that they could do this kind of controlled roll with it. Um, I, I, I haven't been able to really track it down. I actually got to uh, not one-on-one, -on -one, but sort of through a, uh, another collector got to one of the guys in the art department that worked on the special effects props for Last Crusade, um, but he's an older guy and he was just like, I have no recollection of, uh, he's like, it looks right, but I have no recollection of what this is or what this would have been. I'm not saying it's, it was just, it was sort of a nothing answer. So you I don't know, know I was actually, I was able to find, there's also a seam that runs through it from the casting that matches another known correct real cup. So I know I know it's right, but I just, I want somebody to come in and say, yes, I built that. This is the sequence it was used and this is what it's for, but it just hasn't happened yet. And I was just going to say, by the way, Ryan, and I'm sure you've thought of this too. It also could be that they built a contraption, tested it, didn't like the way it looked and moved on to another method, which right. still means it was made and whatever, just they then went, oh, this ball bearing thing that's not going to work. No, right. Moving right. on. Right. And there, there, that's, that is part of the, the, I mean, that's an interesting one and less like, Oh, it's a fake. But on the flip side, there are unfortunately a lot of fakes and I, we see them all the time. I mean, yeah. eBay is littered with them. Sure, I yeah. very, I mean, eBay, and I'm sure again, this is the same with autographs, fakes with fake certificates of authenticity. Anybody can just make oh a certificate yeah. of authenticity. Right. They're, they're, they're meaningless unless they are from, I would say, uh, certainly one of the major studios. And like the studios don't do their certificates of authenticity in crayon. That's a, that's a hint or a clue. Yeah, that's, a, that's a little known fact, but Dave and I have done years of research and be able to find Better that secret. out. Now, my, yeah. fav my favorite fake is the fake that has the, um, the signed fake prop by the actor who um, possibly doesn't even recall making the movie or using the prop. There's nothing quite like the authentication by the actor that had nothing to do with the making of the prop or, uh, or the making of the movie other than stepping on set that yeah. one day and so holding basically, it. Basically, 
someone like waited in line and paid $50 and got them to sign the helmet, right. they'll, yeah, $50, I'll sign whatever you want. This is a paid signing. Doesn't mean my signature means this is a screen used right. aliens right. helmet from the, you know, colonial Marines. I mean, right. Right. It's, and the thing that we talk about a little bit on the show is that there are, as, 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 as the collecting has gotten more, I guess, out there and people are reading about it and it's attracting people. And like anything else, I think you see it in sports cards and whatnot, you know, that people with money or a Wall Street guy wants to like buy a cool piece for his office or whatever it is. Uh, that same guy spends years and hours analyzing stocks, but then just goes on eBay and spends a ridiculous amount of money on a Superman costume because it's just there without doing any research. And I, that that really the mantra of our show is always just do your research. But it was signed by Christopher Reeve. Yeah, yesterday. Right. That's the weird thing. He signed it recently. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's it's definitely the same. And it, personally, I never purchased anything. Um, if if I ever purchased anything, it was from someone, a fellow collector I knew, and who I trusted. I know he got that from whoever that person was. Uh, never, I mean, yeah, I mean, eBay, any, anything like that. I mean, you run into all kinds of scams and fakes and things like that. And so it's definitely to me important as well to know the, the provenance of the item, where it came from, you know, how did you get this? Um, you know, because people will show up, you know, you know, I had someone ask me the other day, she wanted to buy, um, she saw it was a, it was a family friend of ours and she wanted to buy something for her husband for uh, Kobe Bryant. And she sent me this item and I said, listen, I don't, I don't know if it's fake or not. I do know Kobe was one of the hardest person's autographs to get when he was obviously still with us. Um, and he never did paid signings. He never, you know, you, you had to catch him in the right mood. I, you know, you had to have like a giant billboard. Some, somebody put it, wrapped their car in it and they got it, him to sign one autograph. So, you know, there's things like that where it's like, yeah, you know, and it's the same thing with props. I'm sure you guys know when something comes up, you don't necessarily know per se, but you have a feeling, you just kind of know the background of a different item. And, um, you know, you can kind of tell right away if it's not, genuine or, or, or something like yeah that or so. for example i have a picture um well it's 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 hard to explain what it is but basically it, it was signed supposedly like three weeks ago by christopher reeve and kobe bryant right. and i'm pretty sure it's real i mean i'm pretty <laughs> sure you have a good so, feeling about it yeah, yeah i got a good yeah. So it's, and it's, you know, and it just, it's, it is, I definitely am the same way. I want to know where this came from. I definitely don't want to have anything in my collection where it's, I don't know where it came from or it might be fake or something like that. Cause there's too much of it out there. So um, is there any type of specific item you guys find yourselves gravitating towards? I know Ryan, in the first episode, you've mentioned a couple of, of the weapons, the sword, the, the pulse rifle. Um, is there, a, you know, do you, you guys like clothing? You like the, the weapons, you know, is there something that you guys find yourselves gravitating towards over and over? I love hand props. I mean, I think that's sort of what, you know, what, what you've gotten to. Uh, there, I mean, I've, I've collect, I mean, I've have all sorts, you know, I have an Indiana Jones whip. I, I, I love that stuff, but I've really, I've really kind of expanded out over the years. I, you know, now it's the movie, unfortunately, the movies that I collect aren't the movies that everybody, everybody wants, you know, the, the, uh, the sort of gold star standards from the seventies and eighties. Uh, so, you know, you can't be that picky all the time. Sometimes you just have to get, you know, the cool thing that's available as long as it like ticks the box and, you know, I, I'm always looking for A pieces from A films. I mean, that's really what I'm, that's, that's my, you know, my mantra. So um, uh, I think I, if, if I had my, my druthers, it would probably be a hand prop if I'm, you know, just picking something. Um, but otherwise, I, you know, I'm just, I just really want something that's emblematic of the film and the character that's recognizable. Um, one of my favorite pieces that I got in the last couple of years is just a shirt. It's a shirt that uh, Harrison Ford wore as Deckard in Blade Runner. Uh, but it was, it's custom, it's, it's not off the rack. It was custom made, you know, for him, for, you know, for the film, you can tell it's custom material. It has that kind of golden age sort of studio make feel to it. And uh, it's again, just a shirt, but it's 
from the end sequence when he, you know, uh, goes into the Bradbury building and confronts Batty. I just, I just, I love it. I absolutely love it. So it, it's really, it's, it's much more dependent on, uh, I think on the, on the, the film versus, oh, that's, that's a hand prop versus a helmet versus, uh, you know, others, but other collectors are different. Yeah. Yeah. I was gonna say, you know, one of the things we do in every episode is we sort of play this little game at the end of the episode where we sort of challenge each other with like a movie of like, what would you want from that movie? And some movies are harder than others. Uh, I think neither of us are big, even though Ryan just mentioned the shirt, we're not big wardrobe collectors across the board. I don't have a lot of like so-and-so suit from a movie. I do think there are things like Deckard shirt from Blade Runner that are recognizable and very specific, but there are a lot of movies to me where a suit's a suit, you know what I mean? And yes, it, it might be so-and-so suit, but I'm, I am, again, same thing. I'm looking for that one piece that for me just kind of goes like, oh, that's from that movie. Yeah. And sometimes it's harder, but when you find the right thing, and by the way, my right thing is not your right thing, and my, your right thing is not Ryan's right thing. And so, for example, I picked up a small piece um, a couple of auctions ago um, out of um, Marathon Man, uh, which is a movie I love, 70s and all that kind yeah. of stuff. And what it is is it's one of the little boxes, little metal trays of, well, in the movie, they're supposed to be real diamonds, but they're fake diamonds, but it's the little tray of fake diamonds. They're basically the, the way the Nazis smuggled the diamonds that they stole from the Jews out of the Holocaust. And now, you know, this is what the whole movie is about. And for me, it's this little slice of I know exactly what that is. And again, that may not be the same for you, but for me, this movie I love, in some ways, it's the MacGuffin, it's the driving force, this diamond heist that sort of is the whole movie. And it's these crappy little metal trays that to me are instantly recognizable. Again, more so than perhaps Sir Lawrence Olivier's overcoat in the same movie. And again, that may not be it for you, but for me, it's perfect. And that's, that's what I'm looking for when I'm looking but, for something. But Dave, I'm curious, would the Lawrence Olivier's overcoat in the film violate your no Nazis policy? You have a very stringent no Nazis policy with your collection. I do. I do. And I guess I hadn't thought about that. I mean, I guess he's a, sort of a later in life Nazi. I mean, I guess I wouldn't go for the coat probably anyway, although I do. I guess I have this sort of contraband diamonds. But the, in defense of the overcoat, it is it is swastika list. There is no it's just a I think it's just a camel hair coat. So, yeah, <laughs> it's the coat of a reformed Nazi. Well, he's not reformed, but he just, uh, I don't know. It's, I don't know. I don't want the coat, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad we worked that out. I love that you brought up the, the game y'all play at the end of the episode because I wanted to do a variation of that and ask what prop from each other's collection would you oh, take you, if you, you were ever. I just wrote this down <laughs> on a piece of paper that we're, I wanted, <laughs> Ryan, I haven't even told you this. Oh, I have this I had this idea to do sort of an episode or a segment about collecting jealousy. Uh, Cause it's something sure. I think I've run into in my collecting. Like uh, there are, uh, there are, there's one or two guys in my collecting world that I don't even speak to anymore because I, for lack of a better word, my collecting made them so crazy that they like, I don't know, like turned on me in some strange way. And I thought a fun part of this would be what we had in each other's collection, but we'll do it here and we'll figure out how to change it for the show. That's okay. Uh, you want to go first? Uh, well, I think for an answer. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I mean, I, I know my, I know my answer. So Dave so I think, has, no, I think I know your answer too. So go on. Yeah. Ahead. Yeah. So Dave has this amazing piece uh, that, uh, that I think, I think you got maybe right around the time that I met you to, I, is it possible that I was there when you got it or, or like, was like, yeah, here, I, I finally it's got possible it. That, like that was the night, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. Like, so this is yeah. like, this is like over 10 years ago at this point. Uh, but Dave actually has Harrison Ford's firing uh, solo blaster from return of the Jedi, the, the actual functional gun that was made by Stembridge props with all the hardware attached to it. Because Harrison, you know, very, very famously hated doing the pew pew 
action on set and wanted something with feedback. So he always wanted a real gun. I mean, even the Deckard gun, like actually fired because he always wanted to be able to act against something that was actually happening. Right. And um, this, the reason it wasn't in the Lucas archives is because it was a firing gun. So every, you know, this is, a, we'll do a whole episode on movie guns, but a lot of movie guns actually survive the studio archives and go back to the armors that supplied them to the film, the fire, because, the, you know, they're very heavily regulated and whatever. So, so Dave in a way was, you know, was very lucky, was got, you know, got, was able to get this thing because it, it didn't come, it wasn't in the Lucasfilm archives, it came through another place. But it is just like, Han Solo is my favorite character. Return of the Jedi is my favorite Star Wars movie because that was the one I saw in the theater as a kid and wore out the VHS tape because Empire Strikes Back bummed me out. Now I, I love that one, of course. But, you know, the sense memory of Return of the Jedi is very strong. I put on that movie and I just smile ear to ear every time I watch it. And I just... <clears throat> I've had this experience three times as a collector where even like even my jaded old, you know, sort of grizzled, <laughs> grizzled ass was like, I, this is the most amazing thing. I can't believe I'm in the presence of this thing. And that, that was one of those three times. It is, it is just the greatest thing. It's amazing. I love it. Yeah, That's the one. I will say as the owner of it, it's all of Star Wars wrapped up in one object in sure. a way that not often is even though you you strive for those pieces in your collection, this one is it's just it's jammed packed with Star Wars ness. Yeah. Um, well, I was. Oh, yeah. I said, don't leave Ryan alone in the room with it. No, never, never. Uh, yeah, Dave. Well, it was always a water pistol. It was very. It's a well known thing that Han Solo, Harrison Ford, liked to use a water pistol. I don't know what you're talking about. One of the great things about both COVID and Ryan moving to London is I don't have to worry about him <laughs> stealing from me as much as I used to. Um, I'm trying to think for you, Ryan, I, I, I'm going back and forth probably between two pieces. One maybe you know, and one maybe that'll surprise you. Um, the one piece that we talked a lot about on the show is is the, the, the hero sword from Conan. Just it's this just masterful heavy real sword made by a a sword master i mean it really is something um, well like you said it's the whole movie in one yes, object it just, right? yeah all of that conan movie and milius and everything in this one object and it is incredible um but semi-recently uh and i was kind of with you for the entire acquisition of it um, Ryan added a piece to his collection about, was it a year, about a year ago, right? Or two years ago at this point, so I, I'm losing all track of time, but it's a, a hero jacket from the first Terminator movie. And, uh, that was, that, that was oh, yeah. about the last yeah, two, about years. Two, two years ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I love that movie. I mean, I really do. And that is just such a recognizable piece for me. And I don't know if it, it, I don't know if it beats out the Conan piece, but it's on my mind a lot when I think about killing Ryan. It's definitely, it's a, definitely up there. Yeah. Oh, my. Are you talking about Arnold's jacket or Michael Bean's? Yes, Arnold's, Arnold's jacket. That yeah, so the of, punk, the yeah, punk jacket with the chain yeah. and, the, yep. and the, the studs, the, the most 80s thing in the movie. It's, yeah. it's great. And mine, mine is all shot up, so it's got the, you know, the squib hits because it's, we, we sort of figured out actually in, in talking about doing your research, we kind of, you know, Terminator, the first Terminator was a, a bit of a, um, an independent film, you know, it was made on a very low budget. And um, usually when, when you have, like in Terminator 2, there are leather jackets that have one bullet hit, no bullet hits, and then all the bullet hits in them because they had stages. So the wardrobe department, and they, and this means there would have been like 50 jackets that they made for the film. So that yeah, wherever Arnold was in the was story. was insane on the second one. And so right. they had just leather jackets. Yeah. Not so on the first one. And we have not been able to find and authenticate a non-bullet hit Terminator one jacket. So the so the again the punk jacket, the first, the one that he steals from you know Bill Paxton's buddy right. at Griffith Observatory at the beginning of the at the beginning of the movie. It's funny because it's Bill Paxton, it's the alien bounty hunter from the X Files, and then the other guy, and then the the other guy is the guy the Terminator steals all the clothes from. But he um. Uh, anyway, so so mine has all the bullet hits, and and in doing the research on it, sort of figured out that everybody that has a real one has the fully shot up version. So we actually think that they must have shot sequentially, and then just used like went through all the jackets in that sequence, blowing you know hitting it and blowing it up as he got as he got shot up. But mine, I'm pretty sure I have to do a little more research on this before I commit to it. But I'm pretty sure mine matches to the 
sequence where he sits down to do the surgery on himself when he like cut, you know, cuts his eye out after, yeah. you know, after tech noir. Um, yeah. When he first sits down at the table, there's some blood here uh, that's the, the droplets seem to match. And if you imagine them kind of spreading and fading over time, the pattern, I have to do a little more research, but I'm, it's, it's, it's a great piece. I do, I do it, love it, but it actually surprises me a little bit. It's an, inc it's just an incredible piece. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. There you go. So um, another thing y'all mentioned, um, you know, obviously a lot of times when you're tracking these down, you are meeting with maybe not the people that worked on the movies themselves, but their, their relatives, their sons, their daughters, you know, whatnot. So have you guys a little bit of a morbid question, but have you considered what happens to your collection? You know, when you, when you pass on, do you, do you want your kids to always hang on? My wife is downstairs considering it right now. She's thinking about it right now. She's rubbing her hands together and uh, yeah, she's just, it's delighting her. Um, you know, I guess I sort of figure, I mean, again, we'll see, you know, as the years go by, you know, it's like, I'm sure at some point, um, you know, I'm sure things will leave me over time, whatever. But yeah, no, I think about like, oh, this will be for the kids and then they can figure it out. And right. maybe that just means, you know, maybe that means my daughter wants none of it and my son wants it all and they fight and never speak to each other and whatever. And I don't know, but yeah, I guess, I try not to think about it, I guess, is the answer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, that I could be a few, an episode in season 80 of this, Dave, is your, your children doing the collector jealousy episode and, and no longer speaking to each other. Because do, of we, the, uh, do, we, do we write our wills live during an episode? Yeah, <laughs> that's very good. That's very good. Um, no, mine, I think, you know, I, in a serious answer, like, I, obviously, you know, I do think about it. I mean, I, I, I do, I think it's a bit sentimental, but I, I do kind of like the, the idea that we are just ultimately caretakers of this stuff. And, it, you know, it is going to outlive us and eventually pass us on. I like to think that, you know, I don't need to sell this at any point in my life, that I'm successful enough that I can have it and retire comfortably and just enjoy it. Um, I think some of it I would I would love if the if the Academy Museum would would want any of the things that I would have I would love to be able to donate you know something to them at the end of the year I don't know that my collection really fits in with the some of it does but it fits in with the Academy I don't know how interested they are in Conan the Barbarian but um, but uh, you know I think I, my hope is that my kids like it enough maybe they like me enough that they want to keep something to remember me right. maybe in the end, whether they like care about the, cause movies are very generational, you know, the, the stuff that, you know, the, the things that my dad would have collected if he was a collector, not necessarily, there would be some overlap, but not necessarily the things that I would. So I don't know that my kids are going to care, but, um, but certainly, you know, the hope is that, you know, somehow it benefits the family somehow when I'm, you know, when I'm gone. Yeah. And so, is there most of y'all the the props y'all have mentioned are from fantastic amazing movies aliens uh, you know blade runner conan is there a prop you either want or have from a movie that's just absolutely terrible um <laughs> but that you know but that you you know it's a terrible movie but you love the movie and so that prop maybe is not necessarily the sexiest prop or is going to get the most oohs and ahs but you really you either, like I said, either you're looking for it or one that you already have. I I don't know. I mean, I like to think that all of the movies that I collect from are good. I think I think really everybody that everybody does really think that. I'm trying to think. I I don't. I really don't think that I do. Maybe I did at one. Maybe I did at one point. I don't know. But even even that, I I I don't know. No, I don't. I don't think so. I think I've been pretty pretty regimented about it. I mean, I'm not going to say they're, I'm not going to say they're terrible movies, but I have stuff from movies that don't fit into the categories that we're taught, you know, that are not the, the, iconic. The, yes. So, like for example, I loved, loved, loved the uh, Steve Martin Eddie Murphy movie Bowfinger from oh, uh, a couple okay. of years back, sure. and I have a couple of. Like I have like some mind head stuff, which was their version of Scientology. Mm -hmm. And I have like a fake uh, chubby rain, like uh, invite to the premiere. And so I have a couple of little odds and ends like that of a movie that I don't think you necessarily put in the category of, you know, aliens and Blade Runner. Right. But, you know, I, but I do love and I, you know, I love 
70s and 80s comedies, and this is another thing we're going to do a show about, they're hard to collect. I mean, I love meatballs, but what are you going to have for meatballs? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, I'd love something from Caddyshack. Maybe that's something that said like Bushwood Country Club. But again, I don't know quite what I would find. I'm not sure I would want a golf club. Do you know what I mean? So again, some of these, like, like some of the, that category is often sort of, I guess, tough to find the, 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 you know, again, this is part of that game we were talking about. It's some, some of these movies don't lend themselves as easily to props, but I do still love them, but they are definitely not big genre movies, I guess is the answer. Yeah. I, I do. Have, I actually do have an answer because it was only in my collection for about, you know, 25 minutes. But I was able, there was a uh, crew contact that I had that I had acquired things from and liked me enough that from it was it, it was the son of it was not the original crew guy because this crew guy was back in the in this in the 70s and 80s. And from time to time, he would offer me things that, you know, movies that his father had worked on. And um, he came to me one time and he was like, I have John Belushi's jacket from 1941. Right. And and it was, you know, he, he had this bomber jacket with all these patches on it. It's very, you know, it was actually not patches, but it, like painted or, or silk screen. So they were actually like printed onto the leather. And, you know, you, it's in every photo that you ever see with him. And uh, and I was like, it's, it's John Belushi. It's it's a Spielberg film. And uh, and I bought it because I knew somebody would want it. I just I, I just wanted to keep the relationship alive. And it wasn't that much money. So I just bought it. And uh, I remember getting it home. And I was like, I was like, this is really cool. But man. That movie is just, I just, I, I love Spielberg, but that is just not the Spielberg movie yeah, that you want when, to collect when, from. When yeah. Ryan had that thing, I actually, and I, it's so funny because it- You I thought can, about it too. <laughs> I thought about it and actually downloaded, bought the movie on iTunes. And because it's 1941, it's at the top of my iTunes list forever now. <laughs> and I watched the movie or at least started watching it. And I was just like, oh, I forgot how this is not good and then i just started jumping to the belushi sequences and then i was just like i'm not i'm not buying that thing and i just and but i but but i'm haunted by the movie on my itunes to this day so yeah yeah but another collector ended up with it because he's such a mental spielberg fan that he didn't care he just he just wanted it because he loves spielberg so much and, so and great way, he got I it love, i love I that Conan piece loved, out of it. yeah i love that he loves it i just i couldn't do it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. No, and I think that, that that is definitely a part of the collecting where there are there's things that aren't necessarily as important to others. But for you, you know, this is a, a, a piece or a movie you really love for whatever reason, the connection to it. And so I thought I think that's kind of an interesting aspect of it, that they're not necessarily, like I said, the most famous pieces, but you love the movie for whatever reason or the, the actor, the director, stuff like that. So, uh, I mean, those. That's pretty much most of my 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 uh, prop collecting questions. Right. Obviously, uh, my editor would murder me in my sleep if I don't ask about House, House of the Dragon. Um, I know better than to ask anything spoiler-ish. Uh, um, but just can you tell me what your reaction was when you found out that, that the, the series was going to be made? Because obviously there was, I think it was five or six shows that were in consideration at one point. Um, so that's kind of a different process than just you pitched one project kind of knowing there was a little bit of competition out there. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. I was actually the last guy into the last writer into the mix. Mm -hmm. Uh, so there was a, there was a previous, uh, attempt, uh, you know, development, different script, different writer on this particular storyline, right. uh, that didn't work out for, you know, for, for whatever reason, honestly, I, I never even, I never even, you know, the script never even passed through me because they were just, it was starting a new, it was a new idea, a new, new kind of way ahead. And um, they developed these, these, you know, these five ideas. They ended up, they, I was, I was sort of somewhat funny. I think I was one of the first writers they spoke to when they started talking about the spinoffs. And then I was kind of the last guy that they spoke to. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm a big, uh, I, I have spoken about this before, but you know, I'm a huge uh, Westeros fan. I, you know, I, I discovered those books 20 years ago. Um, I was a George R. R. Martin super fan. The reason that I know George, the reason that he approached me with this job was because I fan stalked him when I was making a pilot in Santa Fe where he, you know, where he uh, kept a house and I knew I was going to be there for two months. And I just said to my agents, Hey, can uh, I know, you know, I know George lives in the area. Can I buy him dinner at some point while I'm here? So they set it all up. 
we went out, hit it off. He, he liked me. He liked that I had brought a, you know, a cool Western to, uh, to shoot in his backyard. So we just kept in touch. And, um, you know, he, he brought up my name a few times very kindly with, you know, with HBO cause he liked me. And, um, they spoke to me very early when they were, they were starting this spinoff uh, process. And I had kind of very passionately pitched, uh, Dunkin' Egg as the, uh, as a spinoff idea. Cause I was like, that's, that's a great way to go because the big, the, the original series is how do you even, how do you even follow it? It's so big. It's so, you know, it's so scopy. It's so success, successful. I was like, the only way to do it is just to go against the grain and do something really different. So the idea of this, you know, the kind of, you know, lone wolf and cub, like the wandering swordsman right. through, you know, through the countryside. And it just, you know, George just really, the HBO love, loves Duncan Egg. They desperately love it. But George really wants to finish writing those stories, I think, before that's adapted. And I think he wants to be a little bit more involved with that over time. So that was sort of, you know, it was a conversation that came and went. So I came back in at the end and, uh, and, and, and did this. And I thought, you know, when he pitched this idea to me, I was like, oh, yeah, the, you know, the story of the Targaryens is definitely the story that we should be telling. That's great. I got really excited, obviously, just, just to have the, the, the shot. Um, I went at it thinking that I'm going to just give it my all. I know I'm up against like five or six different, you know, competitors. Um, but, uh, but I was, uh, you know, I, I was shocked. I mean, I was, I, I knew it was going well cause I knew they liked it. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I didn't, you know, I never anticipated that cause I was being set up that they were, they were just going to, if they were going to do anything, they were going to make a pilot right. and it, Miguel got involved, um, who I, I was, you know, close had become close friends with we developed you know three other things together that never got made but we knew each other and so when we got kind of match made for this it felt like hbo liked that idea because they love him as a director he's a brilliant director he knows thrones obviously yeah. um so it kind of felt like oh they're gonna make this pilot and i was getting really excited and we got the call like that i was thinking oh it's all of hbo they're green lighting the pilot and they said we're making the whole series and i was like i, I like I, you know I was like, I went into like static shock. I, I just couldn't, sure. I couldn't believe it. And I like staggered out of my office and then <laughs> I went upstairs. And I think I, I think I was just laughing because I couldn't, I couldn't get out the, the sentence. I had to go tell my wife, like, uh, you know, Hey, we're moving to Europe, <laughs> but it was, uh, it was, I mean, you know, there, there are some ugly days when you do this for a living, but that was, that was definitely the, you know, so far the best day that I've had as, as a writer. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, I love that you brought up the Dunkin' Egg. That was definitely, as far as from an outsider's perspective, one of the, the stories that we thought would, would also make a great show. So, um, because it is so different from, like you were saying, it is so different from the, the original series. It's much smaller in scope. Um, yeah. You have the big events, but just, you know, it's, it's a little different. So how, you know, how do you, when you're, when you're writing the show, and again, as, as spoiler-free as possible, how do you keep House of the Dragon from feeling like um, just Targaryen Game of Thrones and differentiating it from from the original series? I mean, I think it's anything that you're, I mean, without saying anything, because right. I will get, you know, they will, they have a, actually a device inside my head that they can just detonate remotely and uh, they'll just replace me with, you know, somebody else um, if I say anything. But uh I, I think, you know, as any writer, and I think, you know, Dave would probably say the same thing is anytime you approach a project, it's like, why, am, why are we telling the story? Why are we, you know, and that's usually a theme question. So the, the original series has certain themes. And I think, uh, you know, I've found Miguel and I have found together this, this thematic that runs very much through the Targaryen dynasty that we're very excited about. And that to me, you know, gives you the sort of all the, you know, the kind of familiarity of the, of the original that people love so much while, while having a very different thing to say about, about the show. And, you know, my thing is like, is it, Miguel, Miguel always says, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. We're, we're really trying to approach, approach the, you know, the show and honor all the things that were great about the original while, you know, not just doing the same, you know, a cover of the song that you've heard before. So we're, it's trying to be original without, without trying to completely break the box. Right. And that's, that's the, that's the balance that we're trying to walk. And I'm very proud of what we've done. Look, I'm trying to write the series that makes me very happy as a two decade fan of this thing. So I feel like if I can accomplish that, then I've done most of the work that I would expect of the, whoever else was doing this if I was sitting on my couch as a fan of it, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, we're, we're all very excited about it. We're, we're watching and scratching and you know reading the tea leaves and trying to find out. Um, the, the news came out the other day that uh, Patty Considine had been cast as, as Viserys. The, the yes. Uh, what do you think about that casting? 
Oh, well, I mean, I, I cast him, so <laughs> I liked it a lot. Why, yeah. why, why, why was Patty the one that was the chosen? Because obviously Viserys is a, is a key role um, in, the, in the show um, without spoiling anything for people who haven't read the Fire and Blood. But, um, you know, what specifically maybe made you guys choose Patty? As, as that I, I mean, he's just an incredible actor. Honestly, like we didn't talk about anybody else. It was, you know, as soon as that, that idea came up, we just, we talked about him. He can do anything. You know, you look at his, his body of work and he's done, you know, he's done from comedy to dark drama. He, he's just, he's just a, you know, incredibly gifted actor. And we know that he can pull off whatever we give him to do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, that's basically all I have. I certainly appreciate the time. I love talking, uh, collecting with you guys. Um, I feel like it's kind of a shared language. So I was super excited uh, when I when I listened yeah, to the first episode. So, um, so definitely um, everybody check the podcast out when it comes out. It's the Stuff Dreams Are Made Of. It's available wherever podcasts come out. It comes out once a week. Anything else you guys want to add? Uh, if you check out our uh, Instagram or Twitter, which is uh, at Props Podcast on both, right? Yeah, yeah we both put, Twitter and Instagram at Props Podcast. Put up pictures of the things we discuss, so you get to yeah. see some really great looking props there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, thanks for the time, guys. Look forward to the, you know the the podcast being very successful, and uh, hopefully we can talk again soon. That'd great. be fun. Thank you so much. Right. Thank you. Guys. All right, take care. This podcast is brought to you by Fansided. Join our community of over 300 sites from sports to pop culture and everything in between. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.